Why have all my favorite childhood stores closed down? It's something called retail churn. Some stores close and others open to take their place. What causes retail churn? Listen in as I talk about it with a few hundred of my closest friends. You're listening to Where We Buy. It's the show about the things we buy and the places we buy them. My name is James Cook. I research retail and real estate for JLL. Every week we have conversations with fascinating people and we visit shopping spots across the nation. Today we're going live from the stage at Retail University. Retail University is an annual training event at JLL. It's an opportunity for the folks who manage and lease our shopping centers to get together and learn. I was asked to give some perspective on the current state of retail, and as you'll hear, I prefer to take the long view. So I was back home in Pennsylvania recently visiting um, with my family, and we started talking about all of the places that we used to shop when I was a kid. So the, the department store that was nearest to where we lived was called Hills. So that's where you're going to get like your discount underwear and socks and stuff like that. Then after Hills, we'd go down the street to Murphy's Mart, which was like one of the anchors at our local mall. And of course, once I'm inside the mall, I'm making a beeline for Walden Books. So you know, this was a time before uh, Amazon, a time uh, before Barnes & Noble. So Walden, Walden Books and B. Dalton was pretty much all we had. So I'm sitting back there, like in the horror Stephen King section for a couple of hours while my, my sister and mom are shopping. Or I'm over at the record store getting a record or a tape. After that, if we're good, if we're lucky, we get to go out to dinner. My favorite place to go out to dinner was Chi-Chi's. It's funny, like half the audience knows what Chi-Chi's is and half the audience has never heard of it. We loved Chi-Chi's, my sister and I, and we always wanted to go there on our birthdays because on your birthday at Chi-Chi's, they'd come out and they would sing the birthday song to you and they would put um, the, here it is, the birthday sombrero on your head and take a Polaroid. This isn't me. I called up my dad on the phone. I said, Dad, I need you to find a Chi-Chi's photo of me from when I was a kid. My dad's like, I'm sure it's somewhere in the attic, but I'm not going to look for it. So this is just a photo I found online. So if you've been paying attention, you've probably noticed something that all of these retailers of my childhood had in common. And that is the fact that they no longer are around. They're all, they're all gone. They've all closed. So what's going on? Does that mean that uh, um, you know, we're seeing negative growth in retail right now? Actually, quite to the contrary, it's, it's totally the opposite. Other than the Great Recession, we've seen year-over-year growth in retail sales for decades. And for me, one of the big things that I track is vacancy rate. And the vacancy of shopping centers is at a historical low. So how do we explain this, these two contrary things? Well, for those who've been in the retail industry for a while, they know about this thing called retail churn. Retail is really highly susceptible to churn. New retailers come in, old retailers go out. Retail continues to grow. So retailers might die, but retail does not. So I started thinking about what this retail churn is all about and what causes it. 
And I thought I'd share with you guys a little bit of the findings of my research. What causes retail churn? It's two things, primarily two things, disruption and desire. So I'll tell you about disruption first. Disruption occurs primarily for two different reasons. The first is a new business model comes along that's better than the old business model, or some new technology comes along that's better than the old technology. And sometimes, actually, both of those things happen all at once. So here's an example. Um, I have spent, you know, hundreds if not thousands of dollars in late fees over my lifetime. But at the time, right, Blockbuster Video and other video stores, they were fantastic because, you know, they were all we had. Um, but they had limited selection, and you had to go to the store to pick up the movie. And then when you watch it, you had to go back to the store to return the movie. So... When I heard about Netflix, I was one of the first people to join. I was so excited about Netflix. It's a new business model, so you don't have any late fees. You're paying uh, just a monthly membership fee. They have a huge selection, and you get to stay at home. You don't have to go to the store. But there's some real drawbacks to Netflix. It's really slow. You've got to wait for that movie to come in the mail to you. So enter the next disruption, and that's Redbox. So it seemed like red boxes started popping up all over the place. And they settled on a dollar per movie per mite rental fee that was really inexpensive, really convenient. The drawback to red boxes, they have a pretty lousy selection. All you're getting is a couple of new releases. So finally, the greatest and latest disruption in this movie chain is streaming. It's the best of all worlds, so there's no late fees. There's no trips to the store. It's instant gratification, and you have great selection. So as I was doing my research on Netflix, I read that Reed Hastings, who's one of the co-founders of Netflix, he offered to sell Netflix for $50 million, which is just a drop in the bucket of what its market capitalization is today. And the investor he offered to sell it to said, no way. This Netflix model, it's just a niche business, and it's not going anywhere. That investor was Blockbuster Video. <laughs> so disruption comes in two forms, new business models and new technologies. New business model might be uh, rent a movie out of a vending machine, or get a movie in the mail. New technology is like the DVD that now is small enough that you can mail it to somebody inexpensively, or that high-speed internet that allows me to stream movies from home. Okay, so let's do a little trivia question for you. When did self-checkout begin? When did the first self-checkout technology begin? 60s, 70s? Actually, it was 1937. And I'm curious to see if anybody has ever heard of this one. This is a store called Key Doozle. Has anybody heard of Key Doozle? No, no hands. Okay. So Key Doozle, and there are actually three Key Doozle locations, was founded by the guy who also founded Piggly Wiggly. And it was a store, it was a grocery store where you didn't push around a cart, but as you can see on your screen, you would browse these glass cases. And it was called Key Doozle, which means key does it all. And it's kind of a weird name, but here's how it works. That thing that she's holding, they call that a key. And you'd walk around, and whenever you saw something you'd want to buy, you'd punch that key in the keyhole, right? So you had this whole ticker tape full of punches. And when you were done shopping, you'd go to the cashier, and the cashier would just run that tape 
through a machine that would automatically total up all of her purchases for the final bill. At the same time, that machine would send electronic signals back to the stockroom, and so that everything that she purchased was automatically sent via conveyor belt to the front of the room. So Key Doozle, there were three locations. They opened and closed very quickly. There's probably two reasons for that. One is that the technology was just a little bit ahead of its time. People just couldn't wrap their mind around this whole key situation. And the other was that the technology worked great when the store was slow, but when it got busy, the technology started to break down. So if you're going to be a disruptor, you not only have to have a good idea, but you have to have a perfected technology, and it has to be right the right time for that technology. Okay, so we talked about disruption. So let's talk about desire. So desire is all about what the shopper wants. And shoppers are really fickle. One day they want olive oil, the next day they want coconut oil. So here's an example of changing desire. For centuries, if you wanted to go out to eat, if you want to get something out to eat, you were eating at an inn or tavern, right? And it was a communal setting. So everybody ate together, sat at the table together, paid one flat fee to eat at this inn or tavern. Then in the 1760s, right before the French Revolution, the restaurant revolution occurred. And the restaurant was invented. And it seems like so simple today, but the restaurant was a real breakthrough. And the restaurant had three key innovations. And again, seems simple today, ingenious at the time. The first was about time. You could go and eat at a restaurant whenever you wanted. You didn't have to sit down when they were serving the communal meal. And you didn't have to sit at a communal table. Everybody got to sit at their own private table with their friends and family. And finally, you got to order off of a menu. So you got to eat whatever you wanted and pay whatever price you wanted to pay. So that disruption of the restaurant has been around now for centuries, from burger restaurants to pizza restaurants to restaurants with crazy crap on the walls. So the restaurant industry has been growing decade over decade with this one singular restaurant model while different restaurateurs come in and out. So restaurants, once they start to get a little long in the tooth, once they, once they start to get a little old, they really have to start worrying about this desire, this wants and needs of the diner. And a lot of restaurants will try to do unique things in order to keep those diners coming back to their restaurants. Um, my favorite of these gimmicks is the never-ending pasta pass from Olive Garden. So Olive Garden, in order to celebrate its, its uh, I think it was its 20th anniversary this fall, sold 21,000 of these never-ending pasta passes. So the deal is for $100, you get seven weeks of all-you-can-eat soup, salad, and pasta at Olive Garden. So these went on sale online, and they were sold out within seconds. People snapped them right up. Now you're probably wondering, how much Olive Garden can one person eat? That's a question that man's been asking himself for eternity. <laughs> and I have the answer. Alan Martin ate $18,000 worth of Olive Garden food in a seven-week period with his $100 pasta pass. Great American hero, Alan. So 
Clearly, this is a gimmick. You can't have a real business model based on giving away pasta passes. But this is all about desire, all about trying to earn the desire of the shopper. So let's do, let's do a thought experiment here for a second. So for a minute, I want all of you guys to imagine that we're all in prison together. You guys look like good people, so I'm going to say that you're all white-collar prisoners, tax evasion, you know, insider trading, something like that. All right, so we're all in prison, and we're all up for parole. So we're all about to go before a parole judge. All things being equal, what is the one thing we should wish for, the one thing that that judge should have done? We should hope that judge had recently eaten a meal. This is an actual study. In the morning, right after breakfast, 65% of the time, judges granted paroles. Then as the morning drags on, they start getting hungry. Right before lunch, they granted zero paroles. And this is an actual study of judges. So they go away for lunch, they come back. Now they're granting paroles 65% of the time. So why am I talking about judges and paroles? Well, when I go shopping, I'm a judge. And when I first walk into the mall, you know, and I'm going to Lucky Jeans or whatever, you know, I am weighing things very closely. And who knows, maybe I'll buy a pair of jeans 65% of the time. But like an hour or two later, and my wife's like, come on, let's go, come on. I'm starting to really zone out. And I'm getting what they call decision fatigue, right? I can't make that many decisions. So my brain just starts to go, no, no, no. And that's why shopping centers have to put in new, interesting, unique food and beverage options. Because if you can keep somebody dining at your center, they're like these parole board judges. You give them a little rest, a little relax relaxation. With me, it's usually the Cheesecake Factory. Um, get a little relaxation, then go back out shopping and continue buying again. It's all about attracting the desire of the shopper. Okay, let's do another trivia question here. So see if you can figure out what grocer I'm talking about. This is a grocer that was founded in the 50s. Uh, they opened their 100th store in the 80s. In 12, they launched a new small format, and by 17, they'd opened 1,600 new stores. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That's what I thought, too. Actually, it's A and P. I was messing with you guys. Uh, I misspoke there. It's the 1850s that they were founded. In the 1880s, they'd opened their 100th store. So in 1912, they launched this new small format store. And it's like, boy, this, this business uh, sounds very familiar. It's a small format store. They sell things at low prices. They only have a few people that work there. They sell at high volume. A&P was really successful, and through 1965, A&P was the number one retailer in the United States, and they were the number one grocer through the 70s. So flash forward to 2015, A&P closes its stores for the last time. So what happens? I mean, this is all that retail churn that I'm talking about. In the case of A&P, their stores were getting old and outdated. They took, a bon uh, they took a bunch of debt on to acquire Pathmark. Then the recession hit. They didn't have the income to meet their debt obligations. But when I told you about that business concept, this is what you thought of Aldi, Dollar General. 
hey man, everything old is new again. It's all about churn. It's all about retail rebirth. If you look back to, say, 1950, when A&P was the number one retailer, look at, those, look at these top retailers. There's the top five retailers in 1950. So two of them have closed, um, one's been acquired, and two of them are, are, are on, on the rocks. But, but look at all the retailers now in 2017. It's not like people stop spending. I mapped all the spending patterns. Look at that. They're all just spending what they used to spend at these retailers. Now they're spending at new retailers like Walmart, for example. And the top retailers today are there because of retail disruption. So Walmart had a disruptive business model. They had bigger stores than anybody else. They had lower prices than anybody else. Another one of the top five retailers of today is Costco. The retail warehouse business model broke the mold and has been highly successful. Home Depot, another one of the top five retailers. It's uh, taking your traditional hardware store and uh, putting it on steroids. So disruption is how new retailers overtake old retailers, and that's what creates this retail churn. So as I was doing research on the disruption of retail, there's a question that came to me, which is, is every successful retail business a disruptor? Can you have a successful business that's not a disruptor? So let's talk through an example and see what the case is. So this is one of my favorite places to go shopping. It's called Jungle Gyms. If anybody here is from Cincinnati, you've heard of Jungle Gyms. There are two Jungle Gyms locations in the greater Cincinnati area, and it is the greatest grocery store in the world, the greatest grocery store I've ever been to. There's 1,600 different cheeses. There's 1,400 different hot sauces. But the thing about Jungle Gym is it's not just about the food they have, but Jim himself. <laughs> this guy is a character. That photo is from a, a commercial that Jungle Jim did, and he was zooming around the store on a Segway wearing a wizarding costume. This guy is serious. So Jungle Jim's big thing is he likes to do salvages and recreate new, I should just show you. Um, the, one of his, his first projects was he put a safari out in the front of the store. And he also loves to go buy um, audio animatronics from different, different defunct retailers, like Elvis from Chuck E. Cheese, for example. But my all-time favorite audio animatronic is in the seafood section, and it's the cereal bowl band from General Mills, and they play Beach Boys songs on top of the SS Minnow from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> because why not, right? Um, what I like about the store, too, is it's divided into all these different countries, and every country has foods, you know, all the packaged goods from that country. Here's a photo of, of the Great Britain, and of course you can tell it's Great Britain because you've got Robin Hood uh, and his merry men hovering above the Great Britain section. So what I love about Jungle Gyms is it is a theme park of grocery stores. It is a Disneyland of food, and it is really successful. People come, I live in Indianapolis, which is two and a half hours from Jungle Gyms. We'll drive two and a half hours to go to a grocery store. But the question is, is Jungle Gyms a disruptor? Can it disrupt? And I would say, no. 
And here's why Jungle Gym isn't a disruptor in retail. Because it can't scale. So Jungle Gyms has opened two locations in the Cincinnati area, but what you can't scale is this guy. You can't scale Jim. It's not like uh, McDonald's that you can franchise and spin out all across the nation. So one of the things we realized in our research is not only do you have to have a successful business model, but that business model has to be able to scale to national or international level in order for it to be a disruptor. So, so far I've been talking about retail rebirth, and as I investigated retail rebirth, I realized that a big part of rebirth is this idea of remix. So you take something old from here, something else from here, you combine it together into something new. And so I went out looking for examples of crazy retail remixes. Um, I was at Navy Pier this summer and I discovered something that is a crazy retail remix. So check this out. What happens if you com combine sunglasses with Google Glasses with Snapchat and a vending machine? You get the Snapchat Snapbot, which uh, was at Navy Pier. So if you're not familiar with the, the Snapchat spectacles, so they're sunglasses that you wear that stream to your, your, your uh, Snapchat app. So it's uh, like you can on the fly post point of view videos. And when they first came out, they were only available uh, for sale at these Snapchat Snapbots. And so people were coming from all over to buy the spectacles at the Snapchat Snapbot. And for a time, it was at Navy Pier. So, okay, so here's another trivia question for you. Has anybody here heard of the retail store where there's a big um, ski slope inside, like an indoor ski slope? Back in 1935, Saks Fifth Avenue put a 60-foot-high ski slope in their store in order to help them sell ski gear and ski equipment. They actually shipped in Austrian ski instructors to give ski lessons. So they built a 60-foot slope. Their competitor, Wanamakers, not to be outdone, put in an 80-foot slope. Of course, when I talked about indoor ski slope, you're probably thinking about something like this, American Dream at Meadowlands, which is under construction and delivering soon. But as you can see there on the left-hand side, there's an indoor ski slope. But American Dream is a lot more than that. American Dream is a real remix. So it's got a Legoland, it's got an aquarium, it's got an in indoor water park, plus it's got a whole lot of shopping. So speaking of retail remix, what happens if you take the Netflix movie by mail model and mix it with something like the glasses industry? You get something like Warby Parker. But here's what's interesting is Warby Parker realized they can't disrupt the glasses industry just on mail order alone. And Warby Parker has already opened up 32 physical retail locations in North America and they've got plans to do more. So what they've realized is you can't really be a disruptor if you don't have a component of bricks and mortar retail. Okay, speaking of the glasses industry, I wanna tell you about my favorite new uh, sunglasses retailer. So 
The research team was in downtown LA, and we took a tour. I don't know if you guys, we do this podcast where we do audio tours of different places. So we took a tour of downtown LA, and Brigham Yen, who's a downtown LA expert, said, I've got to take you to this place. It's called Gentle Monster. So Gentle Monster is a Korean eyewear store. And uh, this is their first location in, uh, in North America. So when you walk in, you're in this room and you see this thing that looks like only only thing I can describe it is cu- cousin it from the Adams family. So here you only see one. There's actually several of them in this room and they're just shaking about. You're like, where am I? It's like a modern art installation. And that's actually what Gentle Monster is going for. So you walk in beyond that into the next room and there's this huge like Rube Goldberg device but it's got like farm equipment and it's got like a harvest theme to it. Anyway, the point is you feel like you're in the Museum of Modern Art. But if you can see in the back there, in that photo, there are actually sunglasses for sale at this store. It's a true retail remix, taking a traditional glasses store and adding in this whole experience, this weird high-end modern art experience. So... When I talked about these places that I shopped at as a kid, Murphy's, Hills, which were both acquired by Ames, and then Ames went out of business, it's not like people stopped spending money at retail. It's just they started spending money at newer, better, disrupted places. And, you know, back in the day, we used to eat at Chi-Chi's. You know what? The food at Chi-Chi's wasn't even that good. You know what's better? The food at Chipotle, the number one fast casual uh, Mexican restaurant in the world. And of course, we don't have Polaroids of uh, me wearing a sombrero, but what we've got instead is the burrito selfie. Pretty cool, right? So, as you walk away from today, from what we've thought about this uh, concept of retail churn, think that retailers come in, retailers go out, But that's all about the churn. The churn is caused by both disruption and desire. Because retailers die, but retail does not. Thank you guys so much for your time. It's been fun. A special thanks goes out to the people who made Retail University possible, including Greg Maloney, Karen Raquette, Paige Steers, Cindy Radney, Ashlyn Booth, and many others. I spend a lot of my time listening and learning from people out in the world. I'd love to learn from you. What do you want to hear about on this show? What comments do you have? Leave a message on the Where We Buy hotline and we'll use your voice on an upcoming show. Be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. The number is 1-602-633-4061. If you want to read our retail research reports, go online to jllretail.com and click on Retail Intelligence. Our theme music is Run in the Night by the Good Lauds under Creative Commons license.